This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gloria Keave, April 2018. The Legends and Myths of Hawaii by King David Kalakaua. Section 5. Part 3. The sudden disappearance of Hina created a profound excitement among the people of that part of the coast of Hilo from which she had been abducted. The women who had been permitted to escape ran screaming to the house of Hakalanileo with their tale of woe, and soon for miles around the country was in arms. When questioned, all they could tell was that a canoe filled with armed men suddenly dashed through the surf and their mistress was seized and borne out to sea. This was all they knew. Canoes were suddenly equipped and sent in pursuit, but they returned before morning with the report that nothing had been seen of the abductors. Messengers were dispatched to the co-settlements of Hamakua, Hilo, and Puna, but they brought no intelligence of the missing woman. Uli was consulted, but her divinations failed, for the reason, as she informed the unhappy husband, that the powers that had warned her against the marriage of her daughter— and foreshadowed the result, could not be prevailed upon to impart any information that would interfere with the fulfillment of the prophecy. Uli, therefore, sat down in gloom to await the developments of time, and Hakalanileo started on a systematic search through the group for his lost wife. After visiting every district and almost every village on Hawaii, he proceeded with a small party of attendants to Maui, and thence to Molokai, Oahu, Kauai, and Niihau, and back to Lanai and Kaho'olawe. But no trace of Hina could be discovered. He was well received by the various chiefs, and assistance was freely offered and sometimes accepted. But all search was in vain, and he returned his heart into Hawaii after an absence of more than two years. But his first search was not his last, during the fifteen years that followed, he made frequent voyages to the different islands on the same errand, and always with the same result. He offered sacrifices in the temples, made pledges to the gods, and consulted every kaula of note of whom he had knowledge. But his offerings and promises failed to secure the assistance of the unseen powers, and the kilos and astrologers could gather nothing of importance to him, from their observations. Meantime, Kana and Niheo, the sons of Hina, grew to manhood and prepared to continue the search for their mother, which Hakalanileo had at last abandoned as hopeless. Again and again had their grandmother told them the story of the abduction of Hina, and as often had they vowed to devote their lives to a solution of the mystery of her fate. It was vouchsafed to Uli to see that her daughter lived, but beyond that her charms and incantations were fruitless. But when the beards of her grandsons began to grow, she felt that the time was approaching when Hina's hiding place would be discovered, and she inspired them to become proficient in the use of arms in the arts of war, and to their assistance she brought the instruction of supernatural powers. Niheu, became endowed not only with great personal strength and courage, but with unerring instincts of strategy and all the accomplishments of a successful military leader. 
to Kana were given powers of a different nature. He could contract his body to the compass of an insect, and expand or extend it almost indefinitely. But he was permitted to do neither except in cases of imminent personal peril, as the faculty was rarely imparted to mortals, and in this instance was accorded by Kanaloa without the knowledge of the powers to which that deity was subject. Finally, after a season of long and patient inquiry, it was developed to Uli that her daughter was secreted in the fortress of Haupu, and could be recovered only by force, as she had long been the wife of Kaupeepe and would not be surrendered peacefully. Hakalanileo regarded the development with distrust, for while at Kalaupapa on the island of Molokai, less than three years before, word was brought to him from Kaupeepe offering to open the fortress of Haupu to his inspection. Hence, when his son set about raising a large force to attack that stronghold, he gave them every assistance in his power, but declined to accompany the expedition. Before noting with greater detail the warlike preparations of Hina's sons, let us refer briefly to the changes which the years leading them to manhood had brought to others connected with the events of this legend. Hina had been a not unhappy captive at Haupu for nearly seventeen years, during which Kaupeepe had continued his desultory assaults upon the usurping chiefs of the neighboring islands. His name had become known throughout the entire group, and several combined attacks upon Haupu had been repulsed, the last by land, led by a distinguished Maui chief, with a slaughter so great that the adjoining gulches were choked with the slain. The venerable Kamauaua had passed away, leaving the government of Molokai to his son, Keoloeva, who had married Nuakea, daughter of the powerful chief, Keaunui of Oahu and sister of Lakona, of the strain of Maveke. Moi, another of Nuakea's brothers, had joined Kaupeepe at Haupu, and became not only his steadfast friend and adviser, but his kaula, or prophet, as well. Paumakua had died at a very old age, and was buried at Iao, leaving his titles, meles, and possessions to his son, Haho. But the change did not seem to affect the holdings of Hakalanileo in Hilo, although it brought to his sons some support in their subsequent war with Kaupeepe. Haho was a haughty but warlike chief, and refused to recognize the titles of many of the native nobles, and to permanently degrade them he founded the Aha Ali'i, or College of Chiefs, which embraced the blue-blooded of the entire group, and remained in vogue as late as the beginning of the present century. To be recognized by this college of heraldry, it was necessary for every chief to name his descendant from an ancestor of unquestioned nobility, and when his rank was thus formally established, no circumstance of war or peace could deprive him of it. There were gradations of rank and taboo within the Aha Ali'i, and all received the respect to which their rank entitled them, without regard to their worldly condition. No chief could claim a higher grade than the source from which he sprang, nor could he achieve it, although through marriage with a chiefess of higher rank he might advance his children to the grade of the mother. The Aha Ali'i had a language which was not understood by the common people, and which was changed whenever it became known to the Maka'ainana, and it was their right on all occasions to wear the insignia of their rank. 
the feather wreath, lehulu, the feather cape, ahaula, and the ivory clasp, palaoa. And their canoes might be painted red and bear a pennon. The royal color was yellow. Although Kaupeepee was of the undoubted blood of Nanaula, and would not have been denied admission to the Aha'ali'i, he treated with contempt the institution of nobility founded by Haho, declaring that the blood of the founder himself was ennobled only through the thefts of his low-born grandfather. This was doubtless correct, but Kaupeepee's hatred of the southern invaders would not allow him to be just, even to their ancestors. Such was the condition of affairs when the sons of Hina began to prepare for their expedition against Haupu. They sent emissaries to Oahu and Maui, and were promised substantial cooperation by the leading chiefs of those islands, the most of whom had suffered from the raids of the scourge of Molokai. They collected a mighty fleet of canoes and a force of six thousand warriors, as many more were promised from Oahu and Maui, which, were Keoloeva's permission obtained, would be landed at Moloka'i to operate in conjunction with the army from Hawaii. As an attack on Haupu from the seaside was not considered practicable, even with the overwhelming force that was being organized against it, messengers were dispatched to Moloka'i to prevail upon Keoloeva to permit a portion of the united armies to land on the south side of the island and assault the fortress from the mountain. His sympathies were with his brother, and he hesitated. But when he learned of the formidable force organizing for the reduction of Haupu, he appreciated that he was unable to successfully oppose the movement, and with the assurance that his subjects would be neither disturbed nor despoiled of their property during the conflict, and that the invading armies would be withdrawn from the island at the end of the campaign against Haupu, he consented to the landing. Had he known the real motive of the assault, he would have advised his brother to surrender his fair prisoner and save both from possible ruin. But, conceiving that Kaupeepe's depredations had become unendurable, and that the chiefs of the great islands had at length united to crush him, for his own safety he felt compelled to leave him to his fate. This resolution accorded with the advice of Kaupeepe. Many days before his faithful Kaula had told him of the approaching invasion, of the combination of chiefs against him, and the doubtful result of the struggle, and before the messengers reached his brother, he had gone to and advised him to offer no opposition to the landing of his enemies on the island. Opposition would be useless, argued Kaupeepe, for my enemies are coming in great force. I have slain them and blasted their lands, and single-handed, will meet the consequences. Do not embroil yourself with me, but save to our blood the possessions of our fathers. Perhaps you are right, said Keoloeva, but why not abandon Haupu and save yourself if you are not able to hold it? Never, exclaimed Kaupeepe. For more than twenty years its walls have stood between me and my enemies, and I will not desert them now. I have a thousand brave men who will triumph or die with me. Should Haupu be taken, go and count the corpses around its walls, and you will not blush to see how a son of Kamauaua died. So let the will of the gods be done, replied the brother. But we may not meet again. True, 
returned Kaupeepee with a strange smile. True, my good brother, for my sepulchre at Haupu needs ornamenting before the mourners come. In my name take anything required for your defense, said Keoloeva, still holding the hand of his brother, as if reluctant to part with him. My heart, if not my arm, will be with you. We shall be well prepared, were the words of Kaupeepe at parting. And before he reached the top of the pali on his return to Haupu, the messengers from Hawaii landed at Kalaupapa. With this concession from Keoloeva, the arrangements for the campaign were speedily made. The main body of the united forces was to concentrate at Kaunakakai, on the north side of the island, and move under the supreme leadership of Niheu, while a large detachment, embracing the best seamen of the several quotas, was to blockade the sea entrances to Haupu, destroy the canoes of the fortress to prevent escape or succor, and cooperate generally with the land forces. This dangerous service was entrusted to the command of Kana. At the appointed time, the Hawaiian army set sail for Molokai in a fleet of over twelve hundred canoes, many of them double, and carrying a large supply of provisions. The assistance of the gods had been invoked with many sacrifices, and the omens had been favorable. In one of the large double canoes was Uli. Her form was bent with age, and her hair, white as foam, covered her shoulders like a mantle. In youth, she was noted for her stateliness and beauty but age and care had destroyed all traces of her early comeliness, and her wrinkled face and black eyes glistening through the rifts of her long white hair gave her the appearance of one who dealt with things to be feared. She was surrounded with charms and images, and before her, on a stone-bordered hearth of earth, burned a continual fire, into which she at intervals threw gums and oily mixtures, emitting clouds of incense. Her canoe followed that of the sons of Hina, with their priest and war-god, and red pennon at the masthead. And as the fleet swept out into the ocean with thousands of oars in the waves and thousands of spears in the air, Uli rose to her feet and began a wild war-chant, which was taken up by the following hosts and borne far over the waters. The day following, a number of expeditions left various openings on the coast of Oahu and Maui none of them approaching the Hawaiian army in strength, but together adding an aggregate of nine hundred canoes of all sizes and about four thousand warriors to the invading force. All of them reached the landing of Kaunakakai on the day appointed for their arrival, and Niheu found himself in command of ten thousand warriors and over two thousand canoes. No such number of spears was ever before seen massed on Molokai, but the people had been assured that they would not be injured either in person or property so long as they remained peaceful. And the terms of the agreement with Keoloeva were faithfully observed. Among the invaders, the people found many friends and relatives, for intercourse between the islands at that time was free and frequent, and although their sympathies were with Kaupeepe, they soon came to regard the projected capture of Haupu as a great game of Gunane, played by agreement between two champions during which the spectators were to remain silent and make no suggestions. The tents of the chiefs, around which were encamped the respective followers, extended along the shore for more than two miles, while the beach for a greater distance was fringed with canoes, many of the larger painted red 
and bearing gaudy pennons of stout kappa. As plundering had been forbidden, provisions of dried fish, potatoes, coconuts, taro, and live pigs and fowls had been brought in considerable quantities in extra canoes. But, as the duration of the campaign could only be surmised, rolls of kappa and matting, shell-wreaths, ivory, feather-capes, calabashes, mechanical tools, ornaments, and extra arms were also brought, to be fairly exchanged from time to time for such supplies as might be wanted. Part 4 Everything being in readiness for an advance upon the stronghold of Kaupeepe, a war council of the assembled chiefs was called. Among them were several who were well informed concerning the approaches to Haupu, and the main features of the campaign were arranged without discussion. Signals and other means of communication between the two divisions having been agreed upon, the next morning a detachment of two thousand men, occupying five hundred canoes under the command of Kana, moved around the island to blockade the entrances to Haupu, and immediately after the main army, leaving a strong reserve to guard the canoes and look after supplies, broke camp and took up its line of march across the island to the mountains back of the fortress. The trails were rough, but at sunrise the next morning the land division stretched along the summit of the hills two miles back of Haupu, looked down and saw the fleet of Kana drawn like a broad black line across the ocean entrances to the doomed stronghold. Meantime, Kaupeepe had not been idle. Every movement of the enemy had been watched, and when word came to him that the shores of Kaunakakai were so crowded with warriors that the number could not be told, he grimly answered, Then will our spears be less likely to miss. The walls of the fortress had been strengthened and replenished with missiles. Large quantities of provisions had been secured, and sheds of ample space were finally erected for the collection of rainwater, should communication be interrupted with the streams in the gulches below. Before the enemy had reached positions completely cutting off retreat from the fortress, Kaupeepe had called his warriors together and thus addressed them. Warriors and friends, for all indeed are warriors and friends in Haupu. For years you have shared in the dangers of Kaupeepe and have never disobeyed him. Listen now to his words and heed them well. A mighty army is about to surround Haupu by land and sea. It already blackens the shores of Kaunakakai, and will soon be thundering at our gates. The fight will be long and desperate, and may end in defeat and death to the most or all of us. I cannot order, cannot even ask you to face such peril for my sake. The gates are open. Let all leave with my goodwill whose lives are precious to them. Let your axe answer at once, for the enemy is approaching and no time can be lost. For a moment, not a warrior of the thousand present moved. All stood staring at their chief and wondering that he should doubt. Then a confused hum of voices, rising louder and louder, swelled into a united shout of, Close the gates! And Kaupeepe was answered. And a braver answer was never given then, that which came from the stout hearts and unblanched lips of the thousand fearless defenders of Haupu. The gates were closed, with not a single warrior missing, and the fortress was soon environed with its enemies.
Halting his army on the summit of the mountains overlooking Haupu, Niheu dispatched a messenger to the fortress with the signal of peace, to ascertain with certainty whether Hina was a prisoner there, and, if so, to demand the surrender of the captive. The messenger returned in safety, bearing this message from Kaupeepe. Hina is within the walls of Haupu. Come with arms in your hands and take her. Communication was established with a fleet in front of Haupu, and Kana was advised to enter the gulches in force the next morning, destroy the canoes of the fortress, and maintain a footing there if possible, while a strong division of the land forces would move down and draw attention to the rear defenses by taking a position within attacking distance. In pursuance of this plan, early next morning, Niheu dispatched a formidable force down the mountain in the rear of Haupu, with orders to menace, but not to assault the defenses. Arriving near the walls, a little skirmishing ensued, when the detachment took a position beyond the reach of the slingers, and began the construction of a stone wall across the ridge. Meantime, Kana's fleet of canoes, which had been hovering nearer and nearer the walls of Haupu since daylight, with a wild battle cry from the warriors crowding them suddenly, dashed through the surf and partially succeeded in effecting a landing in one of the gulches flanking the fortress. So rapid had been the movement and so thoroughly had the attention of the besieged been engrossed with a diversion from the mountains that a division of the assaulting party managed to reach the canoes of the fortress and another to secure a lodgment among the rocks on the opposite side of the gulch before meeting with serious opposition. The score or two of warriors left to guard the canoes of the fortress were quickly overpowered and slaughtered and then the work of destruction began. With loose rocks and heavy stone hammers, the canoes were being hastily broken in pieces, including the great war barge of Kaupepe, when from the walls above the destroyers was precipitated a bewildering and murderous avalanche of rocks of all sizes and heavy sections of tree trunks. As the missiles rolled and bounded down the steep declivity, sweeping it at almost the same moment for two hundred yards or more in length, the ground trembled as with an earthquake, and the gorge was filled with a dense cloud of dust. The thunder of the avalanche ceased, and in the awful silence that succeeded, Kaupepe, at the head of two hundred warriors, dashed down the narrow path leading from the middle terrace to finish the dreadful work with spear, knife, and battle-axe. The sight was appalling, even to the chief of Haupu. The gulch was choked with the bodies of the dying and the dead. Panic-stricken, those posted on the opposite hillside had abandoned their only place of safety and perished in large numbers in attempting to reach their canoes. The few left alive and able to retreat were wildly struggling to escape seaward from the gulch, in such canoes of their wrecked fleet as would still float, or by plunging desperately into the surf. With exultant shouts, Gaupepe and his warriors sprang over their dead and dying enemies and swept down upon the unarmed and escaping remnant of the invaders. Although a considerable reserve of canoes came to their rescue from without, Protected from assault from above by the presence of Kaupeepe and his party, the most of the fugitives would have been cut off but for the extraordinary efforts of Kana, who led the attacking party, but miraculously escaped unhurt. In the surf, 
in the deep entrance to the gulch everywhere he moved around with his head and shoulders above the water he assisted the canoes through the breakers rescued exhausted and drowning swimmers and from the bottom of the ocean reached down and gathered huge rocks which he hurled at intervals at caupepe's warriors to keep them in check these wonderful exploits awed the attacking party and greater still was their astonishment when they saw the strange being finally walk through the deep waters erect and with his head and breast exposed and step into a canoe quite half a mile from the shore turning to his warriors with these words kaupepe answered their looks of inquiry he is kanna i have heard of him i am glad he escaped kanna returned with his shattered fleet and still worsely shattered army, to Kaunakakai. As the most of his canoes had been destroyed, Kaupepe was unable to follow the retreating enemy to sea. But, hearing the shouts of conflict above, at once mounted with his warriors to the fortress to assist in repelling an attack on the rear wall which had been hastily begun to save, if possible, the sea party from destruction. With Kaupepe at the front, the assault was quickly repulsed, the enemy retiring in confusion behind the lines of defense from which the advance had been made. The wounded in the gulch were dispatched, six of the least injured being reserved for sacrifice, and the night following, the fortress of Haupu was ablaze with savage joy. As the first fruits of the victories of the day, the six wounded prisoners were slain with clubs and laid upon the altar of the Heiau as offerings to the gods, and chants of defiance were sent through the night air to the discomfited enemy beyond the walls. These disasters did not dishearten Niheu. The canoes of the fortress had been destroyed, and that was something of a compensation for the loss of nearly two thousand of his best warriors and a considerable part of his fleet plans for further assault from the sea were abandoned and a regular siege with a final entrance by the rear wall was suggested and in the end agreed to by the chiefs in council lines of pickets were accordingly stationed along the summits of the mountains flanking the fortress in order to prevent the entrance into it of reinforcements or supplies and the main body of the attacking force was moved down and placed in positions within slinging distance of the rear wall. This was not done without loss, for the wall was manned with expert slingers. But in less than a week, the besiegers had advanced their main line of wooden defenses within a hundred paces of the real bulwark of the fortress and were daily gaining ground. This movable line of assault and defense was a device as ingenious as it was effective. Timbers twenty feet in length, or corresponding with the height of the wall, were firmly corded together side by side until they stretched across the narrow summit leading to the fortress. To the top of each fourth or fifth timber was lashed a movable brace thirty feet in length, and then the wooden wall was raised into the air nearly erect and securely held in that position by its line of supporting braces. It was a formidable-looking structure. Against it the missiles of the besieged fell harmless, and behind it the besiegers worked in safety. Section by section and foot by foot this moving line of timber was advanced, until the warriors on the wall could almost touch it with their spears. Several desperate sorties to destroy or prostrate it had been made, 
but nothing beyond the cutting of a few of the lower fastenings had been achieved and the defenders of haupu with tightened grasp of their weapons grimly awaited the final assault which they felt would not long be delayed day after day night after night they watched but the wooden wall did not move and they could only guess at what was going on behind it finally a night of inky darkness came a night as dark as the farthest confines of po bringing with it a storm of wind and rain in the midst of the storm the wooden wall began to move but so noiselessly that the advance was not perceived by the fortress sentinels midnight came and went the storm continued and nearer and nearer to the wall of stone was crowded the wall of timber just as coming day began to streak the east the bases of the two walls came together the backward inclination of both leaving them a few feet apart at their tops hundreds of men then laid hold of the braces and in a moment the wooden wall was shoved over and stayed against the other the alarm was given within and warriors from all parts of the enclosure sprang toward the menaced wall but the movement of their enemies was not less prompt up the braces they swarmed in such numbers that the few who had succeeded in reaching the top of the wall from within were hurled from it and after them poured a cataract of spears against which the opposing force was powerless the huge stone was rolled back the gate was opened and soon the upper terrace was cleared and five thousand warriors led by niheo in person were sweeping down to complete their work of slaughter but their victory was not to be cheaply purchased they had slain two or three hundred on the wall and around the gate but thrice as many more under the desperate leadership of gaupepe were stretched like a wall across the middle terrace with a resolution to contest every pace of the ground with their lives they might have escaped perhaps down the paths leading from that terrace to the gulches but they preferred to die as they had for years lived in defence of haupu down the terrace swept the victorious horde in the grey dawn of the morning niheo vainly tried to hold his warriors in check for he knew the main body of the fortress force was still before him and would have advanced with prudence but the voices of the leaders were drowned in the battle shouts of the surging throng which in a few minutes struck gaupepe's wall of spears and battle-axes and rolled back like a storm-wave broken against the front of haupu but the check was only momentary for immediately behind the shattered column was a forest of advancing spears and with a wild tumult of shouts and clashing weapons the entire force was precipitated upon kaupepe's thin but resolute lines of defence the slaughter was frightful but the unequal conflict could have but one result kaupepe and the fifty or less of his followers left standing were crowded fighting step by step into the lower terrace and thence to the heiau and finally to the temple as a last place of defence there the struggle was brief the roof of the temple was fired and as kaupepe and the last of his devoted band sprang from the blazing building to die at the throats of their enemies they were struck down with their javelins in the air a spear penetrated the breast of kaupepe as a last act he poised his ihe to hurl at a helmeted chief who had just struggled to the front the chief was niheu by his dress or face 
which bore a resemblance to the features of Hina, Kaupeepee must have recognized him. He looked, but his arm did not move. Not for your sake, but for hers, exclaimed the dying warrior, dropping his weapon to the earth and falling lifeless beside it. Not one of the defenders of Haupu escaped, but more than one half of Niheu's army perished in the various assaults upon the fortress. Hina was found uninjured, and while there was great joy to her in the embrace of her sons and aged mother, she wept over the death of Kaupepe, who with his love had made light her long imprisonment. The body of Kaupepe was given to Keolo Eva for interment, as were also the remains of Moi, who was among the last to fall. The walls of Haupu were leveled, never to be raised again, and Hina returned to her husband in Hilo, after a separation of nearly eighteen years, thus bringing to a close one of the most romantic legends of early Hawaiian chivalry. End of Hina the Helen of Hawaii.